So this is verse 25. I'll read 25 through 47. Uh, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. It is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for, the, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, that you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from, from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Do not think that this will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is God's word. Amen. Let's give Shane a hand. Thanks, Shane. Can I get a witness? Amen. All right. Cool. So if this is your first Sunday catching up with us, uh, welcome to the drama. This is an intense passage. Let's try to catch you up. At the beginning of this chapter, Tom talked about it a couple of weeks ago. There's a lame man. He's been invalid his entire life. Scripture says 38 years. 38 years. That's longer than most of us have been alive in the room. 38 years, totally invalid. And Jesus heals him, right? It's amazing. It's, a, it's, it's a kind of a cool thing that Jesus does here. But you wouldn't think so when you see the reaction of everybody else in the, in the story, right? What do the Pharisees do when they see that Jesus healed this guy and he picks up his bed and he walks on the Sabbath? How do they respond? Are they high-fiving Jesus? No. They're ticked. They're ticked off. It's crazy. They're, what do they say? Who broke the law? Who said this man could take up his stuff and walk on the Sabbath? And uh, so, I mean, I think that just shows us what's going on in their hearts. They see life from this really skewed lens. They're living life apart from God in a religious bondage instead of living life with God in religious free, or in, in relational freedom. You see that? And so this, this bondage is driving them to live out of fear. And the man says, I'm just doing what the guy who healed me told me to do, right? I don't know where he's at, but 
he told me to take up my bed and walk. So they finally discover it's Jesus. They come to Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm just doing what my Heavenly Father tells me to do, right? And, you know, if you've got a bone to pick, pick it with him, but I'm just doing what God says. And then he enters into this amazing monologue that we started last week, and we will continue today. And at this point of the dialogue, Jesus paints a picture for us. I think it's a picture that will challenge every one of us here today. If we really listen in and allow the Holy Spirit to really speak to our hearts, we'll be challenged. Saints, sinners, believers, and skeptics, we're all going to see him paint this picture of a courtroom. Do you see the words through the text? Judges passing judgment, testimonies, witnesses. He brings indictments. And ultimately, in his closing argument, he brings a verdict. And, and, and so I'm excited today to talk about this trial. Can I get a witness? All right, you're still with me. Cool. And at first glance, you'd think, you'd think it was Jesus that's on trial. Like, who's on trial here? You'd think it was Jesus. But, uh, in fact, there was this song we used to sing back in the day, Jesus is on trial. Will you be a witness? Anybody ever heard that song? We should play that song for him real quick. Then sings my soul, my Savior God. That's a good song, though. Get ready for it. Jesus is on trial. Will you be a witness? Jesus is on like trial. That? Will you be a witness? Jesus is on trial. Will you be a witness? God needs every witness in the land. That's it. <laughs> That's the Barrett sisters. Classic, classic gospel. Love that. And uh, Jesus is on trial. Will you be a witness? And there's a sense in which that's true of this passage, and we'll talk about that toward the end. And it's true of our daily lives. We're called to be witnesses. But when we look deeper into this passage, we see something else going on here. Jesus isn't actually on trial for his life in this moment. And he's not defending himself for his own sake. He's not like, hey, you guys coming against me, let me tell you something. Right? He's not getting all fiery in the eyes. He's actually defending himself for their sakes. He's saying some things. He's bringing this courtroom drama into the center stage so that they'll see something about him and about themselves that I believe God wants to show all of us today. What does Jesus say in the first part of 25 through 29? He says, He's the judge, and some will resurrect to life and others to death. So there are lives, there are souls hanging in the balance as Jesus speaks these words. But but what is his purpose in the courtroom trial? And he says it, and you're going to hear it over and over today. Verse 34, but I say these things, why? So that you may be saved. This is a trial for their sakes. Their very souls hang in the balance, and Jesus is arguing like a good lawyer for them, for their benefit. And he's going to call some witnesses. He's going to make some indictments. And in the end, in his closing argument, he's going to lift the veil and show them their own hearts and what the real issue is, why they won't come to Jesus. And again, why is he doing this? But I say these things so you may be saved. And here we stand on a Sunday morning, 
And we stand to gain everything or lose everything based on this question. What do you make of Jesus? That question is for everyone here. Whether you have never made a decision to follow Christ, or whether, I don't know, you were filled with the Holy Spirit from your mother's womb like John the Baptist, you know, whether you've been serving God your entire life, you followed all the rules, you've done everything right, or whether you're just a big mess up, this is for you. What do you make of Jesus? So let's dig into this text and examine what Jesus has to say about himself. Three things. We'll examine the witnesses, the indictment, and the verdict. And at the very end of this, I want you to listen close because um, it's going to fail miserably. The sermon will fail miserably if you guys don't help me apply this at the end. Because the application is going to be totally dialogue. I'm going to ask some questions. So please pay attention and get ready to share what the Holy Spirit's saying to your heart. Firstly, three witnesses... And he gives us these witnesses so that we'll see Jesus as he is. Right? Jesus has made some claims. He's claimed in verse 20 to be equal with God. And that sends the Pharisees like freaking out. And he says, I'll tell you what, in verse 31, I don't want you to believe this incredible claim simply based on what I say. In fact, he says this, and it's kind of confusing at first when you read it. If I testify to myself, my testimony would not be valid. Why would that be? It's an interesting question. Why would it be inter- I mean, why, why would his testimony not be valid if he testified to himself? And then he calls three witnesses. Well, in ancient jurisprudence, um, in Hebrew scriptures, for instance, in Deuteronomy 19, it says that in the mouth of two or three, what? Witnesses, every truth is supposed to be established. And this wasn't uncommon for the ancient world. You couldn't build a case based on what one person had to say. You had to call a second witness. You had to have corroborative evidence, right? You had to have eyewitnesses. Otherwise, you don't have a case. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if I testify myself, it's not enough to establish truth. I know this claim that I'm equal with God is hard for you to swallow, but... God has given plenty of evidence, and here's three kinds. It's it's interesting. It's the same three kinds of evidence that we all have. Same three kinds of evidence you'll see basically used in courtroom settings as well, right? And Tim Keller says says this, like, well, let me ask you a question. If, If you're here today and you say, I'm not sure why I should believe in Jesus, Tim Keller has this quote. I love this. He says, what Jesus says is that faith in him is certainly more than thinking, but it's not less. It's more than examining the evidence, but it's not less. If you can't believe, you have to ask yourself if you've really looked at the evidence. Another way to say that is maybe somebody says, I don't really hear God speaking to me. Have you gone to the places where God speaks? Are you, are you listening? Have you held a trial, so to speak, and listened to the witnesses? Jesus says, don't believe me just because I say it. Look at the evidence. And here's the three kinds that we have. Same same kinds of evidence we have in our daily life. We have personal testimony, empirical evidence, and written testimony that show up in this passage. Briefly, personal testimony. He he calls John the Baptist. And I love what he says about John. He says he was a burning and shining light. And you guys loved to walk in his light while he was here. 
says that in verse 35. Radiant human being. He was a great man. He's this first witness, this first way that God speaks to us is through personal testimony. People who believe, people who live out their faith in such a way that they point you to Jesus. Do you have those kinds of people in your life? And not just from a distance that you just kind of know of them, but are you living life with them? Are you walking with them? They're radiant. Unless you know people like that, you haven't heard. But that's not all. Jesus says, God sent John to testify about me, but you guys love John. He bore witness that I was the Messiah. But I won't stop there. I've got more. Number two, there's empirical evidence. He talks about the works that he does. He's talking about his life. Verse 36. The miracles, the teachings, the life that Jesus lived, eventually his resurrection. The empirical evidence. Have you looked at the historical evidence of Jesus' life? His claims. Have you looked at the reason for the faith that we have? His death, his resurrection. Have you done that? And then lastly, the third witness he talks about is the written testimony of God. Right? He says, the Father has testified of me. And if you look at the three witnesses he calls the, the pride of place, so to speak, is given to the Scriptures, here's John, a personal witness. Here's Jesus' life and works. It's an empirical evidence. And then you have the Scripture. And most of the rest of the passage is about the Scripture. And it's the only one that Jesus says is the Father's witness. Here's the, here's the point I want to make briefly about that. If you say, I haven't heard God speak to me. I don't have enough evidence to believe. Uh, the Christian faith just isn't quite compelling. Let me ask you these three questions. Do you have a burning, radiant light in your life? Do you surround yourself with people who are living such changed lives that they're drawing you to Jesus through themselves, as it were? That they're here preparing the way for Christ in your life, as John the Baptist did? Do you have that? Are you walking in communion with that? Two, have you studied all the evidence and the great arguments for the reality of Jesus? And three, are, are you searching the scriptures? Until you can say yes to those three things with integrity, you can't say you've put yourself in places where God speaks. You can't say you're really open. And if you're a Christian and you've got friends who are yearning for something, they're seeking something, they're looking for something, our job is to get them around those three things. To pull them around the witness of Scripture. To pull them around the community of faith where people have stories and evidences of grace that God is at work changing their lives. To point them to the to evidence, the empirical evidence of what Jesus Christ has done. Does that make sense? So if you've got a family member, if you've got a friend that's, that's hungry for something, I, I would say this, your number one job your number one job is to be a burning, shining light in their life. Is your life radiant? Is it attractive? Do you, are you living a life that people would actually even want to imitate? Is the gospel such good news? Has it transformed you so much that people are drawn to Jesus and his work in you? Where have they seen God radically change you? Are you a witness I'll just, I'll just add this in here, too. Um, just, I think it, it's the same kind of a triad that we can use for our own. If we're believers and we struggle with sin, like where does sin come from? Anybody? Ultimately, like, where does it come from within? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Comes from error and the fall. We believe something wrong, right? We believe false beliefs. We have unbelief in our life, and that leads us to act in unbelieving ways. That's where sin comes from. Right? And that's, you, you see that in the garden, right? The snake comes and tells Adam and Eve, has God really said? And he causes doubt, and they act in unbelief. Sin is just living in accordance with the unbelief in our life. So what is the thing that helps heal sin? Change our lives, transform us. The truth of who God is, right? They shall know the truth, and the truth shall make them Yeah. Yeah, the truth of God frees us from sin. So where do we come into contact with the truth of God? Where do we come into contact with Jesus, his person, his character, his love, his grace? In scripture, right? Through the Christian community as we live in life with one another. You guys see the Okay, I won't spend much more time on it. That's how this starts. Jesus brings some witnesses, and he says, guys, have you examined the evidence? And maybe when you hear this, maybe you're, like, excited about it. You're like, that's great. I'm, I'm really excited. Maybe you have this sense of mounting resistance or tension in your heart, whether you're a believer or not a believer, when you hear this. All right. But what Jesus says next really blows the lid off. He says that the evidence isn't the real issue. Get ready for this. This is where the meat of the scripture really comes together. And we're going to walk through this verse by verse, 37 to 47. If you have a Bible or smartphone, you can pull it out. If not, we'll get it up on the screen. I think it's, I think it's in the PowerPoint there. Um, but what Jesus says is that it's not the lack of evidence. It's not the lack of wisdom. It goes much deeper. Because we realize something, that those who seem to know God best are not believing. The people who are... The religious leaders are supposed to have it all together. They lock the doors to the auditorium when people, so people can't come in because they're... Just kidding. And that's essentially what the rest of this passage is about. And it's amazingly relentless. Jesus brings some indictments. This is going to get heavy. This is going to get scary for a second. But just hold on with me. It's going to be worth it. Look at the first indictment. And, and guys, I just want to say this. It would be a big mistake to think this is about somebody else and not for you. Some of the most powerful moments I've had are when the Word of God has hit me right between the eyes, and I've said, I've owned it, and I've said, yeah, God, you're speaking to me right now. I have learned the deep things about my own corruption. So, so listen to these indictments and say, is any of this actually speaking to me today? First is verses 37 through 38. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He's saying you've never heard from God. You've never seen God. His word is not in you, and you do not believe him. Ouch. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm a teacher of the law. I have my own scroll at home. Where Verses 39 through 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me. Literally here, in the Greek it says, you do not want to come to me. Althelite, eltheon pros me. It's exactly how Greek sounds when you pronounce it. 
you do not want to come to me that you may have life. You read the Old Testament, which points everywhere to me as a fulfillment of this scripture, but you don't see it, you don't believe it. Why? Because you don't want to. I want you to have life. I'm saying these things so you will have life, but you don't want it. You want something else more than the life I've come to bring you. Third, verses 41 and 42. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Jesus is saying, I don't need the love of man to complete me. I don't need people to brag on me and high-five me and tell me I'm awesome. Why? Because the love of God is my satisfaction. It's enough for me. But you, you do not have the love of God in you. You don't love God and you don't find your satisfaction in him. Verse 43, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. You don't receive me. You want another kind of Messiah. See, you don't like the kind that's not heaping glory upon himself, that's calling his disciples to die daily. You don't like that because of the implications for your life. You want a Messiah that basks in the glory because that validates the kind of life you want to live. Verse 44. How can you believe me when you receive the glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Of course, that's a rhetorical question. It's not answered in the text. Saying you can't believe me while you're enslaved to craving, receiving glory from one another. You can't believe. You can't have life while you keep searching for it apart from the one who's trying to lead you to it. You keep looking for life over there, but I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And lastly, verses 45 to 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to my father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You don't believe Moses, and you don't believe me. You don't believe his writings, so you don't believe my words. Moses' writings point to me, for he wrote of me, but you don't see it. And you, you won't need me to judge you. Moses will. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. If you believed me, you would believe the Father who sent me. So, so there it is, this relentless string of indictments. Verse 38, you don't have God's word in you. You don't believe the one whom he sent. You don't want to come to me. You don't have the love of God in you. You don't believe me. You cannot believe. You don't believe Moses, and you don't believe me. And you're like, dang, that's heavy, Vince. Give us a break. I got to cover it. It's in the text. It's my job today. But there's good news in it. Right? Why was this written? I know it's heavy, but remember, we, we talked about this at the beginning of the series. Why was the Gospel of John written? John says it. In John chapter 20, he says this. He says, These things are written so that you may what? Believe. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John is not mounting up these indictments here for nothing. He, he's going somewhere with it. He's trying to do something in your faith, in your heart right now. He's trying to challenge the things that come between you and seeing Jesus as he is. He's trying to get, you know, open heart surgery, dig in there deep and cut out all the stuff 
that would deter you away from loving God with all your heart. These things are written so you may believe and have life in his name. But he, he ends up at this ultimate indictment, Jesus does. Why are those who seem to know God best not believing? What does Jesus answer? It's down at the bottom of verse 40. There's one bottom line answer, almost at the bottom, right? You refuse to come to me, literally, you do not want to come to me. You may think that your struggle for faith has to do with the evidence, with the lack of intellectual reasoning, with the testimonies. But what Jesus says here, ultimately, is that when we struggle for our faith, whether it's for the first time coming to faith, or whether we've been following Jesus for 3,000 years and we're still struggling daily with sin and unbelief, he says, ultimately, it comes down to what you want your desires. What we want has a massive effect on us. He says in verse 35, you wanted to rejoice a while in John the Baptist's light, but now that's over and you don't want to come to me. The, the root issue is what we want. And why don't we want to come to him? And this is the last piece that he says here in verse 44. He gives the answer. He says, how can you believe when you receive the glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. You can't believe. Why? <clears throat> because you love the glory of man, not the glory of God. You don't want Jesus because you want human praise. You don't want Jesus because you want to be the sinner. You want to be in control of your life. You want to live for your own glory. You want to be exalted. You, you want to be made much of. You love being somebody. Pick whichever one fits best. They all fit me. Apart from God's sovereign grace in my life, I have so many reasons for not wanting Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. I fight it every day. We are living for our own glory. How do we apply this today? Well, the whole purpose of this trial is so that we can arrive at a verdict. And just like Jesus was pulling for their hearts, he is pulling for your heart today. So in the trial, he argues for two things. He argues witnesses so that we can see him as he really is. And then he lays out these indictments so we can really see ourselves, really see our hearts for what they are, right? Why? So that point number three, the last point, the verdict, what will you do? Why is he writing this? So that we might be saved. So that we might find life in him. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 17.3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know the only true God in Jesus whom you have sent. Jesus wants us to see him so that we can be saved, so that we can experience true life. But what we do most often is the opposite. Can I get a witness? Cool. Have you guys ever looked for God apart from, or looked for life apart from God, maybe in like relationships or satisfaction elsewhere? 
We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? Seeking our own glory. And it's like God really wants to hammer this home in our community because here we are again talking about, are I li- am, am I living for God's glory or am I living for mine? And there's this tender trap. I'll just confess, those of us engaged in ministry really struggle with this. Like literally searching the scriptures for life. Searching the scriptures to have a killer sermon so we can get the oohs and the ahs. We, we like that. We do. So we can have security that comes from a job, you know, because we preach really good sermons, then many people will be drawn. And then we will have many offerings. And then we will have job security. Don't say that, Pastor Vent. No, seriously. It's the tinder trap. One of my mentors warned me about at a young age. The tinder trap of ministry. Doing, like literally doing things for God ultimately for you. And you say, man, I'm sorry. That sucks for you, Pastor. That's, uh, don't fool yourself. We all do that. We all do it in our own ways. In this passage, what's the emphasis on? The emphasis isn't just on the scripture. It's on how their hearts are responding to the scripture, right? They're looking for life in the scripture apart from Jesus. Does that make sense? They have a heart that's unresponsive to God's grace. It's resistance to God's life as a result of God's work. And they're seeking something. They're seeking their life apart from God in religion. Studying their Bible, ignoring Jesus. I remember as a young Christian, I used to just love the time card thing where I did my 15 minutes of prayer in the morning and and Bible reading. Anybody ever been there? And then I remember when I moved it up to 25 minutes, I was like, yes. Pop my collar because it was the 90s. (laughs) I have arrived. Just going to leave it up the rest of the service. Just going to leave it up. Let me ask you. So this is where we get to some application. This is where you guys, hopefully the Holy Spirit will move on your heart and you'll share what's, what's really going on. What are some ways we look for life in religion, in legalism? Maybe, maybe it's ways you've looked for life through religion, or maybe it's somebody you know who's done that if you don't want to own it. Another, another way of asking that, just to clarify, is this. How do we live for our own glory instead of God's glory through obedience to the Scriptures? Does that make sense? What are some ways we do that? We, we've got the one. We've got the one. Reading Scripture apart from relationship, just as a moral calisthenic to make myself feel better about me. What are some other things we do? Prayer? How so? How so, Austin? There's guys I know. Praise. <laughs> um, yeah, praying to either get something mm. or to avoid something or to just check the box off. Mm. You know I'm supposed to pray, so you just get it out Yeah. So it loses that relational impulse and that, that it's not flowing from life in the gospel, but it becomes a duty that I have to do for God in order to feel better about myself, feel more like a Christian. Yeah, good. What else? Yes, Katie. Yeah. 
Hmm. So trying to pull things off, ultimately, for our own glory instead of God's. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we had, I don't know if you guys noticed, but we had 25 people show up at our gospel community this week. It's pretty cool. Oh, you want my secret for success? Yeah, you know what I've been doing? I've been doing a lot of shepherding. I've been talking to people all throughout the week and just, yeah, it's, it's, it works. You should try it. Yeah. What else? What else do we do? Mm. Mm. That's so good. That's so good. Yeah. We do things in order to elicit a response from God. Ultimately. And we've, we know that, right? Because we're, we're like, when it, we don't get the response we want, then we get ticked at God. I've been doing this. I've been saying this. And psh, where are you at? Yeah. Yeah, he's the one abandoning us. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's so good, yeah. Doing good in God's name, whatever that good might be, right? Whether it's feeding the poor or inviting somebody to the gathering or whatever it is, doing that ultimately for me, not for God. Yeah, Rams. Um, I think God uh, finding significance mm. So instead of my identity being rooted in Christ's work for me, I take that. That's not good enough. I'm going to root it in my work for him, right? I'm going to find my significance, my value, and what I do for God. Yeah. That is selfish. Yes. Mm. That's good. Yeah. Well, people love you more when you give them lots of stuff, right? <laughs> exactly. The surface, they love you more. Right. They right. may not love you down underneath. That's great. Mm. Yeah. Brian. Hmm. Ah. Uh, that's so good, man. That's so good. Yeah, we can take doctrines of, like, for instance, one, one I was counseling somebody this week, and they were like, uh, it was a sovereignty issue. They're like, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I'm just kind of checked out because if God's sovereign, he's just going to do whatever he's going to do anyway. And instead of the truth about God drawing us to him in relational dependence, and bring, you know, like Philippians says, uh, you know, bring it, letting our, um, not being anxious for anything, but bringing our prayers and supplications to God and receiving the peace that comes, that passes understanding, right? From that, instead of that approach, instead of bringing our stuff to God, it's just kind of like an apathetic approach. Instead of relational, it's apathetic. Yeah, that's not loving God. It's, it's checking out. It's good. Yeah, one, one more question. Now on the opposite side of this. So that's the 
moral, religious, legalistic side. Let's look at the immoral, irreligious, licentious, lawless side. How do we live for our glory instead of God's through disobedience? Or what are some ways we look for life in irreligion? And this is what you hear on the Sunday sermon a lot more, right? All the sins, all the bad things people do. Well, what are some of the ways that we do that? Mm. Living for ourselves, not acknowledging God in our life. Yeah. Selfish and self-centered. Good. Yeah, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Pop my collar. Yeah. Yeah, man. No, that's good. That's good. Living for man's approval. How about addictions? Yeah. That's a big one, right? Struggle with things because we're looking for pleasure and satisfaction outside of God. You know, I'm just, I'm going to go for this. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't really going to go for this, but you guys remember the story of the prodigal son? I think this lines it out better than, than any other parable, really. I'll recap it really briefly for those that maybe haven't heard it. The story of the prodigal son, you've got a father, two sons. He's got a wealth of inheritance. One son says to him, the younger brother, Dad, I want my money now. I want it all. I want it now, right? And he takes his money and he goes out to a far land and he spends it, as the King James says, on riotous living, whatever that means. I think we could all imagine though, right? Fill in the blanks. All the things you wanted when you were a teenager. Like he just went out and lived, lived it all, spent all his money, ends up leasing himself out to a rich citizen of that country and works in a pig pen. Finally, one day comes to himself and says, what, servants even have it better than I do in my father's house. I'm just going to go back to my dad's house and say, can I be a servant? Right? You guys remember the story? What happens when he comes home? Father runs to him on the road. His father's been standing there searching for him, waiting for him on the road. And he sees him coming and he falls on his neck and he gives him his ring, which signifies his authority as a son. He takes his, his nice clothes and puts them over his back and clothes him in something beautiful. It's this, all this beautiful identity stuff and metaphor that's in there, that you are my son, you're not a servant, that I love you, that I'm clothing you in my righteousness, right? You see all this stuff, and he invites him back. Kill the fatted calf, we're throwing a party. All of a sudden, all the things the son really wanted, he wanted the parties, he wanted the, the, the really good food and the really good drink and the cool clothes and the power and all that stuff, and he's got it all in his father's house, but he was out there looking for it. Yeah. And then you've got the older brother. How does he respond? Ticked off. Jealous. Yeah. The party's going on. Where's he at? Outside. Frustrated. Angry. And what happens? The father comes to him. You notice how the father keeps seeking out the older and the younger son? The father comes to him and says, what's going on? I'm paraphrasing, obviously. What up, homie? And he says, this son of yours, like you can tell his attitude right, right away, right? This son of yours, he came back, he has, he's, he's done everything, he's wasted everything, and you're throwing a party for him. 
right? I've been here, sweating my brow, working my butt off for you. And it's not enough. You never threw a party for me. The older brother, the younger brother. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, we can all relate to that, can't we? We can kind of, kind of relate to both of them. Some of us looking for life outside of the Father's ways, out there, lawlessness, irreligion, doing our own thing, our own way, in our own time, seeking our glory that way. Others of us doing it inside the Father's house, having it all together, acting like we have it all together at least, acting right, working for the Father. Here's the deal. Both of them want what they get from the Father without the Father himself. It's not about relationship to either of them. It's two sides of the same coin. Both of them want the Father's stuff without the Father. And the Father's searching for them both. And I want to tell you guys, like right now, I've been both of those sons at different points in my life. Trying to find my value through my works, working for Dad, trying to earn it. Saying, you know what? I'm never going to earn enough. Instead of receiving His grace, I'm going out there. And I'm going to take what I want. I'm going to live my own way. The pendulum. Have you guys been there? Yeah. Every one of us in this room is one of those places right now. And we're missing out on the gospel, the good news that Jesus came bringing, the grace of God, the life that he has for you. So that last piece, Jesus says these hard truths. He brings these witnesses so that we can see him. And then he brings these indictments that seem harsh, but he does it out of love for us to really see our own selves, our own hearts. And he does it so that they might be saved, so they might find life, so they might turn to him. He's doing it for their sakes. It is grace. It is love. It's the same grace and the same love that is here in this moment right now. If you'll listen to the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, he's drawing you with it. And throughout the weeks, not just on Sundays, but as you engage with the Scriptures in community, as you allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and draw you to the Father, as you hear the testimony of the lives of people who have been radically changed and the evidence of grace, right? As you see that, you keep looking to Jesus as your hope and happiness to remind you that life is found in living for His glory, not your own. And to call you away from the religious and irreligious ways that we seek our lives apart from Him. It's good news today. Will you close your eyes with me as we start wrapping up? Jesus says it at the beginning. He says that He's the judge, that He speaks, and that the dead come forth. Maybe, maybe for the first time in your life, maybe you hear Him speaking to you today, calling you to life. Maybe you don't, maybe, but you want to. That's, that's why you're here. There's good news for you because God has made it more accessible than ever. You're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses and he's at work calling you to faith. Salvation is God's work. When we were far away, he came near. When we were unlovable, he loved us. When we were dead in our sins like Lazarus, he called us forth. He loves you. He has come to bring you life. Maybe you've been looking for life all over the place apart from him. Maybe through obedience, maybe through disobedience. Will you let go of the life you've been seeking and find true life in him today?
Will you let go of the glory you've been chasing and start seeking his glory? Will you stop working to find life and rest in his work and the life that he brings? What do you make of Jesus? I want to ask you that as we close. I'm going to pray and invite you guys to come down and just, I think a simple way um, to do communion today, a question that we could ask is, which of those sons are you identifying most with right now? And why? And how can the gospel free you? Nah. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you've loved us. Thank you that you've sought us out, that you're seeking hearts right now, people that have never believed, people that have believed a thousand times. Now I pray for all the older brothers in the room right now who are looking for life through performance, Help them to feel your love. Help them to feel you're pursuing them outside the party. Inviting them in. I pray that they would feel your grace, God. And all, all of us younger brothers as well, looking for life and things outside of God's house, outside of your ways. I pray we would sense you seeking us out on the road, waiting for us, yearning for us to come home pray that we would just really believe that what you give us is enough. The love, the identity, the ring, the robe, all the things that you would give us is more than enough, and we don't have to keep seeking life outside of you. Mm. Jesus, I pray we believe that your sacrifice for us on the cross was enough, that we are forgiven of every debt, that we are loved with an undying love today. And as we come down and confess, we would know that we're clothed in your righteousness and free to be real with our own brokenness, God. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to invite you guys with maybe as a married couple or as a DNA group or as a gospel community to come on down.